You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19? We're back in the book of Acts. Now, we took a little detour, a little bit for a while there. And our detour was that we were in the middle of our missions convention in November. And then we were in the middle of our Christmas series and Christmas. And then we talked about the new year and new challenges and new opportunities how exciting that is to think about 2021 with a degree of enthusiasm. Are you looking forward to this year? Or are you kind of like, well, I just hope that this year is not as bad as last year. But we should look ahead to this year as an opportunity for God to do something great this year. So we talked a little bit about that, but you know what? Um, we started a series last year talking about life-changing church how God wanted Living Hope Church to be a life-changing church. And back when we started this message, uh, back in, uh, you know, uh, this early spring of 2020, how many know that church looked a lot different then? Am I right? Like, we were thinking, like, you know, as we began this series in the book of Acts, that, you know, we were going to change the way we do church and look more like the New Testament church. And it's true we did change the way we did church, not in the way that we would expect or hope, you know. I don't think we, when we were getting together back in 2020 before this all began that we think that we'd be sitting here wearing masks six feet apart and hand sanitizer like you wouldn't believe everywhere. I don't think we had this in mind when we were thinking about the future and thinking about the direction we wanted to go in as a church. But here we are. But something's important for us to remember as we think about the book of Acts is that when we look at the book of Acts, even though our environment changes, even though situations change and governmental leaders change and, and we find ourselves with different situations change, one thing hasn't changed, and that's the mission of the church. One thing hasn't changed, and it's God's purpose for his kingdom to be carried out through the body of Christ. And although there is no perfect church, although we like to think we come pretty close, <laughs> there's no perfect church it's still God's vehicle by which he intends to carry out his work in the world we live in today so his purpose his plan for his church has not changed and we must adapt to the changes that are in the world we live in today we have to think of the church the persecuted church in various parts of the world in the Middle East and also in China and other parts of Asia where it is uh illegal to be a Christian in some areas, and they adapt to having church. They don't stop having church, but they'll have church in secret. They'll have church underground. They'll have church in different ways. And if the church globally can adapt that way, then we can adapt too. But we must never lose sight of the fact that we have a mission to accomplish, and whether it's 33 AD or 2020 or 2021, the mission and the purpose of the church is still the same. Now, we're going to pick up in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19. So if you'll turn there, we'll look at Acts chapter 19. And this morning, I want to talk to you about signs of the Holy Spirit. Signs of the Holy Spirit at work. I think as we look at 2021, I don't know about you, but I really want to see God move. Last year, and if I can be honest with you, many of us, even our leadership, we are very concerned and worried about the future. We so desperately didn't want anything to happen to you. We love you so much that we didn't want anything to happen to you. We would feel terrible if any of you got sick or any of you ended up dying 
from what's happening right now. But because of that caution, there was a great degree of trepidation, and we held back a lot of things. I just said to my spirit this year that we could still be cautious, we could still be careful, but we should still allow for God's spirit to move. And we should still allow for him to do his work in our midst, because that's what he wants to do. His spirit has not changed, his purpose has not changed, no matter what. So as we look at what life-changing church is all about, it's fitting that we go to the book of Acts, because that is what the early church was. That's the blueprint, that's the model. Now, to give you a little background, where we find ourselves in Acts 19, the Apostle Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, are near the end of Paul's second missionary journey. His first one was with Barnabas, and he preached in various cities and established churches there. And his second one, he went with Silas, and he went back to the places where he preached and started churches to encourage and strengthen the body of Christ. And so, on this second missionary journey, we see that the gospel is preached in Europe for the first time. It's for the first time, it's preached in Athens, Greece, and the gospel has made its way to Europe. Soon, Paul finds himself in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a city that's well known for its idolatry and its wickedness and its worship of all kinds of different gods, and it's in desperate need of a Christian witness. And he begins to speak in the synagogues first. Now, this is interesting because he speaks in the synagogues and then he speaks later on to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to keep in mind, too, that this is very interesting because Paul and Barnabas, on the first missionary journey, said, we are no longer speaking to the Jews. We are going to the Gentiles. And yet, Paul, in his missionary journeys, as he travels from city to city, the very first place that he stops is at the synagogue to preach to the Jews. So he hasn't completely forsaken his own countrymen. He speaks to Gentiles, non-Jewish believers. But he usually starts first in the synagogue. So he will go and preach to them to see what they have to say. Even Paul wrote in uh, Romans 1.16 that salvation is first to the Jew and then to the non-Jew or Gentile. And so he goes and he speaks in the synagogue and they're not really impressed with what he has to say. In fact, they kick him out of the synagogue, and many of those in the synagogue begin to slander his preaching and his teaching and begin to say evil things about the gospel that he shares. So you know what he does when he's rejected? You know what he does when all of a sudden he's no longer welcome in the synagogue? He does something that was rather unexpected. He goes and he sets up teaching in a school. Not just any school, the school of a Greek philosopher. And In this particular school, you could be a traveling philosopher or teacher, and you could rent a room, and that people could come and hear you, and it didn't really matter uh, where they were. It was open up to everyone because that was the idea of free thought and free conversation. And so here Paul rents a room, a classroom, in the school of Tyrannus. I don't know about you, that's a cool-sounding school right there. What school did you graduate? I graduated from the school of Tyrannus. That would look good, really good, on a high school diploma or on, like, a yearbook or on the back of a varsity jacket. You know, what is, I just wonder what the, the, the varsity team for the school of Tyrannus would look like. Are they the Tyrannosaurus Rexes? I don't know. But so, so Paul says he's, like, the very first to do, like, church planting. How many of you have ever been to a church that's in a school? Like, you've been to a church in a school, and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Paul did it first. 
He was the first to do it in like a, a secular school, and he's preaching the school to Miranda. And then people start to come and listen to him and believe. And it's there that we find our story begins. So let's look at Acts chapter 19. And it says there, in beginning in verse 1, and it says, As it happened, while Apollos was in Corinth, and that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, We have not even so much heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized, a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him that would come after him, that is, speaking of Jesus Christ. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And then he went to the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, they spoke evil of the way before the multitude. And he departed from them and withdrew with the disciples, reasoning daily at the school of Tyrannus. And he continued on there for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even their handkerchiefs and aprons that were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them that were touched by them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists took upon themselves to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And they were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, who did so. Now look at this. The evil spirit answered them and says, Well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? As if the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's a bad day right there. <laughs> this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified and revered, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of all of them, and it told 50,000 pieces of silver. So that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You know, one thing that we cannot do without, well, one thing that the early church could not do without, was the Holy Spirit. Could not do without the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he would not speak of himself, but rather he would testify of me, John 15, 26. And he commanded his disciples and he said to them to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit who would empower them to be his witnesses, Acts 1, verses 4 through 8. Empower them to be witnesses. You need the Holy Spirit. The early church understand that they needed the Holy Spirit. And if they could not do without him then, what makes us think that we can do without him now? Think about it. That we're trying to do God's work, we're trying to do good, but are we trying to do it without the Holy Spirit? The early church knew that would be foolishness, that would be futile. It would be a frustrating effort to even try. 
And yet here we are today in 2021, and many churches are trying to do God's work and to do God's things without the presence of the Holy Spirit to help them. We need the Holy Spirit more so now than ever before. Now, let's talk about the signs of the Holy Spirit. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit works on people and it works in people. And you say, well, isn't that the same thing, Pastor? No, it's not. Let me explain. When the Holy Spirit is working on people, it convicts them. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Right? So he's talking about that, that the role of the Holy Spirit is to do that. So the Holy Spirit is working on someone. They could be someone who doesn't even believe in God, that are not saved, but he can convict them of sin and convince them of their need for a Savior. That's the work of the Holy Spirit on someone. But when the Holy Spirit is working in someone, it means the power of God is at work through them to do something great, to preach powerfully, to prophesy, to lay hands on the sick and pray for them and they recover, to to do God's work and to do miraculous deeds. That's the power of God working in someone through the Holy Spirit. We need God's Spirit to do both. If we ever hope to do anything great for God in this year, we need God to work on people, and he needs, we need God's Holy Spirit to work in people as well. We have to say, God, you've got to bring people into this church. God, you've got to save my family member. You've got to save my loved one, my friends, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife, my coworker. Only God, by his Holy Spirit, can work on a person. But conversely, in order for God to do that, we have to be available for God to work in us by his Holy Spirit. What that means is that it says, I'm available, God, to be used by you for your work in your kingdom, to share your message, to share your love. And it's about being available and unafraid for God to do that through us. Is that what you want this year? That's what I want this year. That God, by his Holy Spirit, would work in and through me. So what are the signs of the Holy Spirit at work? Now, we'll mention a few here, because there are certainly many, many signs of when the Holy Spirit's at work. But in this chapter, we'll only look at a few of them today. So God works in a lot of different ways through his Holy Spirit. But we're just going to take a look at this particular chapter of Scripture and see, well, what are the signs of the Spirit working in people's lives? And first of all is this, number one, It's salvation. The sign of the Holy Spirit at work is salvation, verses 1 through 7. That's the first and most important sign of the Holy Spirit at work. Above all other works, the Holy Spirit's job is to empower people to be witnesses of Jesus. And although the Holy Spirit works through the gifts of the Spirit, through prophecy, discerning of spirits, etc., He, everything the Holy Spirit does is to lead people to Jesus. We must remember that at the church, it's critical to the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples to have the Holy Spirit working in us. We read that Paul's making his way through Ephesus and he meets some people that he believes are disciples. Now, isn't that interesting? Is that Paul encounters these group of men or these group of people uh, at the beginning of chapter 19, And he assumes that they're believers. 
because they seem like they're good people. How this may have happened, we don't know. Maybe they were you know, coming and listening to Paul sharing, and perhaps they were coming regularly, and that they were maybe good people. They seemed like they were caring people, kind people. You know you can be a good person and not be saved. You know you can be a good person and not have a personal relationship with Jesus. This is the difference between going to church and just being a member of a church and having your, your life dedicated to God. There's a difference. We don't just come to Living Hope because, you know, I, I like the way this guy dresses or because uh, there's my friends go there. We come here because we recognize that we have a relationship with Jesus to worship him and to maintain with God. And we can do that whether we're here or whether you're watching online. The fact that you are here today is demonstrating that God holds an important place in your life and you want to worship him and serve him. These people profess the belief in God and Paul assumes that they're saved. And so he asks them, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit since you believed? And their answer indicates they had much to learn. Verses 2 and 3 said that we have not even heard so much that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, right there, there's a problem. So Paul is thinking, okay, you're ready to be baptized in the Spirit and to be sent out for my work. But Paul says, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what's the Holy Spirit? And he's like, oh boy, we've got some work to do here. So notice that. It's really important. And he begins to ask them, then, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Ah, this explains everything then. Paul realized he's talking to people who were disciples of John the Baptist, who preached the baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But his preaching was before the coming of Jesus. Remember that John said, you know, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's speaking of Jesus. But before then, he had just been preaching a baptism of the Messiah's coming, and when he comes, you need to be ready, and you need to have a clean heart and a pure heart. So his baptism was a baptism of repentance. So Paul takes the time to explain the basics. And he begins to tell them, he says, yes, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying that people should believe on him who would come after him, that is, Jesus Christ. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So long before you even pursue the Holy Spirit, you need to know who Jesus is. You need to, to acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. You need to turn over ownership of your life to him and to be baptized in water. Now, baptism in water does not save you. This is not what we're talking about. But baptism in water is a sign of your newfound faith and a testimony to all who would witness it that you are a follower of Jesus, that you are about Christianity, that you are about this movement of following Christ. So they hear the message, it's preached, they believe, they're baptized, and now Paul says, okay, great. Now we go on to the next thing. So the second sign of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues and prophecy. Now don't get freaked out. Okay, if you're not from a Pentecostal church, you'll be like, oh, here we go. I came here today, I planned on visiting, and now he's going there. You should really check the sign before you come in next time. <laughs> in any case, don't be freaked out, don't be worried about this. We have to understand that, listen, we kind of get caught up on the act of what the Holy Spirit's doing, not the purpose why it's happening. Look at it this way. 
Verses 6 and 7, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. We can't get this backwards. Salvation must come before seeking the baptism and gifts of the Spirit. Otherwise, people begin pursuing the wrong things, not knowing the reason why. Faith in Jesus and a proper understanding of salvation is essential for every believer to do God's work. Once Paul establishes that these believers had accepted Christ and been baptized, he lays hands on them. And immediately they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now remember, Acts 1, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come and empower them to be witnesses. Then in Acts 2, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in other languages that are understandable to the different kinds of people that are gathered in Jerusalem that day. And so God equipped his disciples with languages they didn't learn to preach the gospel in other tongues. Now, some will say, well, that's just for them. That's not for now. But then Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and this is not like a Pentecost sermon, but we're going to fold some elements in there, kind of like if you're baking and you're saying, well, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to fold something into this, and you're going to bake something good. You would add some things to it. And so these are biblical and scriptural things. And so we understand that in Acts 2, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching to the crowd, and he says this in Acts 2, 38 and 39, says, You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, and as many as the Lord your God will call. So whoever is called by the Lord, by salvation, has available to them the Holy Spirit's power. 1 Corinthians 14, 22 says something really interesting, that tongues are a sign for the unbeliever and that prophecy is a sign to the believer. Now, you would think it'd be the opposite, right? Because, like, when I speak in tongues, or when we worship in tongues, like, people who are believers and who have been filled with the Spirit, we understand that, we get it, we're not freaked out by it. And prophecy, we're like, well, prophecy, you know, that's for the unbeliever. But he actually flips and it says, you know, tongues are for the unbeliever. They're a sign that the gospel has come to the nations. They're a sign that God's at work. They're a sign that the Spirit is there. And that prophecy has its purpose because when prophecy is declared... And people hear it, they'll say, God is truly in our midst. The gifts and tongues of prophecy were given for a particular purpose. It's interesting. Now, why would an unknown tongue be assigned to an unbeliever? Because Isaiah said in Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, that other nations and people would become servants of God, and they would come to Israel, and every tribe and tongue and nation would come to Israel. And these gifts are sending gifts. They're given to the believer to equip them for serving the church and God's purposes. The work in Ephesus was just beginning. And God needed people that were going to partner with Paul. And so he sees these men, and there just so happens to be about 12 of them. Now that's an interesting number when you think about it, really. Because what other number do we see 12? We see the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples, that they were called by God to do the work of the kingdom. And, but Jesus said it's very important that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit and that you are able to work and operate in the gifts. And so Paul uh, lays hands on these men, and the Holy Spirit empowers them, and they partner with Paul for the beginnings of the work in Ephesus. And Paul spends two years of fruitful ministry in the city of Ephesus. As I mentioned last week in a devotional talking about the Holy Spirit. You can be a very good Christian and not be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit at salvation. The Scripture tells us that, that the Holy Spirit's given us as a seal to the believer. 
and that's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So you have the Holy Spirit upon salvation. But you can live a very good life and be a very good Christian and not be baptized in the Holy Spirit with speaking in other tongues. They say, well, how is that possible? Is it because you can live for God, you can serve God, you can have the fruits of the Spirit at work in your life, but never ever cross over into being used by God to a greater degree to reach others powerfully for God's kingdom. There will always be something missing if we choose to just ignore it. But Paul says, and I'll encourage you in this too, 1 Corinthians 14 says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, particularly the gifts of prophecy, but not to avoid the other ones either. Another sign of the Holy Spirit are signs of healing, number three. Verses 11 and 12, you said, boy, he's, he's going to hit all of them today, isn't he? He's going straight charismatic Pentecostal today, isn't he? It's not a bad thing, you know. If you're in Acts, you, you actually will have a hard time avoiding it. Which is really interesting if you're a cessationist and you say, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. Because if you read through Acts, you're like, you, you get hit with it at every turn. So, signs of healing. In, in verse 11 and 12, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that were brought to, from his body to the sick Diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. It says that God worked unusual miracles. Now, the Greek phrase that's translated there means out of the ordinary or not ordinary. Hallelujah. God does things that are out of the ordinary. In fact, a miracle in and of itself is the suspension of the natural order of things. We get old, sometimes we get sick, sometimes we die. But a miracle says, I'm going to suspend the natural order and do something extraordinary. So when God works a miracle, it is out of the ordinary. When it says that God uses that God did unusual things through Paul, it's not a tip for us to be weird and unusual. Some of us are like, unusual things, I fit that category. That's great. And we kind of look at it as an excuse. To be the more unusual and the more weird, the better. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that God will sometimes suspend the ordinary natural order of things, to do something miraculous. Now, the gifts of the Spirit given to heal and to help, it was the miracles that drew the crowd, but it's the preaching of the gospel that saved souls. Miracles and signs and wonders draw a crowd, but there must always be the preaching of the gospel. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the first sign of the Spirit is salvation, that we must see people know Jesus. And it's one of the signs that God uses in Paul and chooses to use through him. Healing is one of the signs of those who believe and follow Jesus. Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, he said, These signs will follow those who believe. In my name, in Jesus' name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, and they'll lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. And so what happens is that some people say, I can't get my sick loved one to Paul. So they said, Paul, can I bring you a handkerchief or an apron? And maybe it's a pampered chef on it. I don't know. But they brought these things to Paul, and they said, Paul, I can't bring my sick loved one to you, but can I bring this to you and have you touch it, and I'll bring it back to them, and they'll be healed. Now, understand that Paul allowed it, but he didn't create it. Does that make sense? He wasn't like, okay, send me money, and I'll send you a handkerchief. Okay? You know? He didn't start a practice of like, okay, start doing this. 
But what was the thing that brought about the miracle? It was the faith of the people that said, I can't get them to Paul, so let me bring Paul to them. Let me bring the Spirit of God to them. And it was their faith paired with an act that brought about the healing and deliverance of people from sickness and oppression. And God rewards people who have a desire to see God move on their behalf. These verses were not written so we could create a practice for the church, but rather it shows what happens when people put their faith in God for a miracle. I'm thankful that we still serve a God that saves, who delivers, and heals. That's part of the joy of being part of a New Testament church. I've had the privilege of praying for people who were at death's door. I get the call from a deacon or a family member or a church member saying, my uh, family member, my uncle, my brother is in the hospital with kidney failure, and they're telling us to gather the family together that he only has a few hours to live. And I've wept with them on the phone. I've prayed with them, and I've prayed, God, would you call them back from death's doorstep? Would you cause life to bring, be put back into them? Would we, this sickness not end in death, but would they uh, hear the word of the Lord and live? And I've been overjoyed in my heart when I hear the testimony the next day that they're doing better and their condition is improving, and they don't die, and they go on living for a few more years after that. That's a wonderful thing. I love being able to talk with someone who says, you know, I have not been able to sleep uh, for the last four years since my husband passed away. When I sleep at night, it feels like something's sitting on my chest, and that I can't go to sleep, and I feel tormented when I sleep. Not a Christian. And when I pray for them, I say, that's going to stop tonight. And I pray for them, and I check with them the next day, and they had their first decent night's sleep in forever. Why? Because God's power is available to us to bring works of healing and setting people free. It's a power that we can tap into, not for our own glory, so that we'd start some great ministry, but so that God can set people free. And if you have a heart and a desire to do that, I guarantee you today God will honor that desire. Because if you want to bring glory to Jesus, if you want to make a difference in this world, that's something that moves the heart of God on your behalf. Now, pastor's like, well, does everybody you pray for get healed? Sadly, no. There have been times I've prayed for people and they've passed on. There have been times that I've prayed for people and they haven't gotten better. But what does that mean? Does that mean I stop? Do I stop going to the avenue that God has given me the only opportunity and the only situation they have that can find them help and healing, and do I just give that up entirely because not every prayer is answered? I want you to know today that it's not my job to heal. It's my job to pray. It's my job to believe. It's my job to help. And so I will continue to pray. And you should continue to pray as well that you shouldn't stop praying just because you didn't get what you prayed for the first time around or God didn't work on that situation. We continue to pray because we have no other option. The doctor says he's done for. She's done for. She only has a little bit of time to live. 
They're looking at the condition, and there's no chance for improvement here. And when all options have been exhausted, all options have not been exhausted because we have one more opportunity, and that's an appeal to heaven that God can do something in an impossible situation. Why? Because God does extraordinary things, things that are not ordinary. He suspends the natural law of things. You can clap for that. That's okay. But when we do not pray, we don't even give God the opportunity to do something miraculous and to bring glory to Jesus. Finally, you still with me today? One last one. Sign of the Holy Spirit. It's the last sign, or not the only sign here, but the final one for today, leaving behind sorcery and spiritism. You're like, well, that's kind of weird, Pastor. Why are you talking about that? Well, look at, look at the story of Ephesus. One thing we see in Ephesus is the reality of spiritual bondage. We see people possessed by evil spirits. People practicing sorcery and a fascination with magic, even among believers. And can I just say that today as a church? Let's be careful what we entertain. You know, when we read the horoscope or when we consult psychics or when we consult the dead or when we think that certain things are okay to watch and we're all right with them, we are playing with things that we shouldn't be playing with. It's like, well, my mother used to do that, my grandmother used to do it. No, you don't do that. I'm sorry. Don't participate in that. We have a higher power. It's not a 12-step thing. It's a real thing for us. We believe in the power of God that is greater than the power of any other spirit at work within the world today. But when we entertain that, we give an open door for the enemy to come in. So Ephesus was in a place where it needed to see people set free. Uh, Verses 13 through 16, we see some misguided exorcists. We see these seven sons of Sceva. Now, we don't know if these are are actually sons of the priest Sceva or if they just happen to be disciples of Sceva. But they were exorcists. Now, most of us know what an exorcist is. Most of us have kind of seen horror movies, and we've kind of gotten a weird idea of what that is. But these were people that went around with, for the purpose of earning money, and some of them would cast out demons. And this was not a practice that was unique to Christianity. There were some Jewish priests that did it. There were some mystics who did it, believing that if you could invoke the name of a spirit, you would be able to control it, And if you invoke the name of a more powerful spirit, you could tell that spirit what to do and cast it out. And so we have these seven sons of Sceva going around, and they're casting out demons, they're performing exorcisms, and they're trying to do this in Ephesus. And so they look at the name of Jesus as just another name, another spirit to invoke. And so they go to this man who is possessed by a demon, and they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, there's a problem right there already. That's like a third-hand eyewitness, right? In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we cast you out. And part of the problem is these men didn't know Jesus. They had no relationship with him. They didn't revere him. It was a third-party transaction. You ever had a third-party transaction? This is what's happening right here. No personal relationship with Christ, no power. And they had neither the connection or the authority to cast out demons in Jesus' name. If you're not a believer, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you have no claim and authority to his name to even use it. 
So we have to be in relationship with Christ, and Christ gives the authority to those who are his disciples. The response of the spirit that possessed the man was very telling. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? As one commentator explained, I found this really interesting, that there, he, the spirit that speaks to these men uses different tenses, Greek, Greek words, for the verb know. And so he says, Jesus I know, and he uses the Greek word gnosko, which means that we know him by interaction and experience. We know Jesus. We've come face to face with Jesus. We've dealt with Jesus before. We know him by interaction and experience. They knew they faced Jesus before, and they didn't want to face him again. And they said, Paul we know, and he uses a different word, epistemi, which means to know of or have heard about them. He said, I've heard of Paul and I've dealt with Jesus, and I know those guys, but who are you? See, evil spirits are not afraid of human beings. They are higher on the spiritual hierarchy than we are. But all are subject to Jesus, and even the weakest believer with the Holy Spirit in them is able to overcome them. There should be an amen somewhere. Even the weakest believer with the Holy Spirit in them can resist them and turn them away. The end is not pretty for these self-described exorcists. One man, full of an evil spirit, beats up seven men and sends them away naked and bleeding. And an interesting thing happens, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. An interesting thing happens here is that these, you know, we get so caught up in things in the spirit that we kind of get a little distracted about what's the purpose of the gospel? What's the purpose of what God wants to do? We've got people playing Ghostbusters, right? Looking for a demon everywhere. It's like, where's the demon? Let's go find the demon. Let's cast the demons out. Let's claim certain things. Let's cast and bind certain things up. But you know what? If you read the book of Acts, that never happened. You don't see them looking for demons. Look at the ministry of Jesus and the disciples and the apostles. What are they doing? They're preaching, and then things happen. The bacon's done, by the way. I'm not sure what that was right there. But Jesus is preaching in the synagogues, and a man manifests a demon right in the middle of the service. Uh, The disciples are going about doing, just walking around doing ministry, and all of a sudden, a man with a, or a woman who's possessed with a demon comes in contact with them. They didn't go looking for them. They just happened to come across them in daily life. And each of them noticed that Jesus and the apostles dealt with it quickly. Oh, no, we don't have time for this. In the name of Jesus, come out. Done. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, it wasn't something they went chasing after or wrestling with. They're like, you don't belong here. You're not supposed to be here. And you don't belong in him or her. So get out. And they left. And the man was set free or the woman was set free or people were set free to the glory and praise of God. And that's a wonderful thing. And we need to understand that we we don't need to go looking for that stuff. In fact, to look after that sort of thing can be unhealthy. Listen, if you're doing God's work, you won't have to worry about finding demons. They'll find you. I don't say that to scare you. Does it make sense? Because the devil hates when you're doing God's work. And in fact, there'll be times where you'll be confused, like, why are all these bad things happening? And if you're attuned to the Spirit, you know why. You know what's going on. You know what's happening. The scriptures say we're not unwise to the devil's schemes when he tries to bring division in your family or difficulty at work or sickness in your body or 
division in the church, and we think, well, what's going on here? It should be clear to us what's going on here. We're doing God's work, and the enemy doesn't like it. So what do we do? We deal with it. We deal with it by saying, no, no, I know what this is. This is not this, and we pray against it, and God works. So it's interesting. The way this ends is fascinating. So the man beats up this group of exorcists, sends them away naked and bleeding, and all of a sudden, everybody in Ephesus starts holding the name of Jesus in high regard. And then everybody starts to listen to Paul's preaching, and they start believing. And it says that they they brought their books of magic, and they they brought them in the, the city square, and they burned them. And it says, you know, each of those, it says that, you know, 50,000 pieces of silver or 50,000 silver drachmas. You know what the the modern day equivalent of what that would be in terms of money? $180,000 worth of books is brought to the city square and burned. Why? Because people recognize there is a name that is more powerful than any other name that can deal with evil spirits in this world. Ephesus was a place of idolatry and spiritism and mysticism. So, and they, a lot of people practiced magic because they were afraid. And if they could control their destiny by controlling spirits, then they feel like that they would be prosperous or successful, or sometimes they would enact spirits against other people. But when they heard that the demons were like, you know, Jesus is that name that I'm afraid of. I know that name then the name of Jesus was elevated in the most unlikely of ways. The man wasn't delivered from demonic possession. The man wasn't set free, but like it gave weight and credibility to the name of Jesus. This is a deeply and superstitious and idolatrous city, but many were set free from the power of the devil because of the name of Jesus, bringing many out of darkness into God's marvelous light. So I want to challenge you with this thought today. There's some that say, you know what? Holy Spirit was for back then, not for today. God did that to start the church. But once the gospel was established and once churches were built, once Christianity began, we don't need that anymore. Can I ask you a question? Has the devil stopped working that way? Has he stopped manifesting his spirit? Has he stopped... Uh, doing wickedness? Are, are there people that are not bound by addiction and sin and all kinds of habits and bondage? Has he stopped working? In fact, as we look at 2020 and 2021, and as we look at end times and the end of all things coming, where things are supposed to get worse and not better, we need the Holy Spirit less now? I want you to think about that today. Ask yourself the question, why would God use the Holy Spirit to start the work of the church When the devil hasn't hung up his hat and retired, and he hasn't stopped using his spirits at work within the world, or to try and frustrate the work of God, if he hasn't stopped doing that, then why would God say, I'm taking that away? I'm taking away the gifts of the spirit. I'm taking away the manifestations of the spirit. I'm taking away the spirit at work within your life. Why would he take that away when you probably need him more now than any other time before? When we think about it that way, we go, surely God can't be done with the moving of the Spirit in his church? The answer is, why would he? The answer to that question is, he hasn't, and he isn't, and he won't. 
because the world needs Jesus now more than ever, and we need the Holy Spirit now more than ever. Do you believe that today? Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.